Any questions? <laughs> We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. Enjoying this series, People Reaching People. The love that we've experienced from God is not meant to be just celebrated and harbored. It's meant to be shared. We're going to begin reading at verse 17. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the great crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Up until this point, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has given the most complete telling of the birth events of Jesus to Jesus' early years as a child coming to the temple, and then John the Baptist, and then the baptism of Jesus. And then very quickly, we run through a couple of chapters that represent pretty much the first year of Jesus' public ministry. He's traveling, great things are happening. Miracles are taking place. Jesus has demonstrated through the stories that Luke chooses to tell, so much more to tell, but through the stories he chooses to tell up until this point, Jesus has demonstrated authority over illness, our physical illnesses. He's demonstrated authority over the spiritual world. The demons flee and, and obey him. He's demonstrated authority over the physical world. So up until this point, Jesus has done a lot of pretty miraculous stuff. In this event now, we begin to see a set of characters set up to develop the plot going forward. Everything that happens from this event now begins at what we would call the second year of Jesus' ministry, which is known as the year of popularity. Great crowds. So many that Jesus often was not accessible, as these people had uh, found. These men couldn't get their friend to Jesus uh, without great effort. We also see those that are beginning to oppose Jesus step in. So what I want to do is I want to set up the cast of characters for you as we look at the events that transpire and what is set in motion now going forward. So we have this cast of characters. We first of all have a very large crowd, Jewish people. They were looking for the Messiah. They were excited about the miracles and the teachings of Jesus. There's this thought that perhaps this is the Messiah. Jesus has certainly claimed to be the Messiah. In the Gospel of Luke is where we see Jesus go into the synagogue and read the passage about the year of Jubilee, the fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom, and he pronounced, today, this has been fulfilled in your presence. 
So make no mistake, Jesus had already by this point made claims to be the promised one that would usher in the kingdom, to be the Messiah. So I'm sure that word of that had come out. And besides his claims, there seems to be this powerful preaching. And then, of course, it's accentuated by these powerful miracles. So, of course, we have a huge crowd, but they're not just a crowd that's attracted out of, out of mere uh, need for entertainment. <laughs> this is a crowd that is hungry for the Messiah. Judaism, as it existed in that day, believed that the Messiah would come and set up his reign on the holy mountain. The political circumstance made it a very real concern because Jerusalem had been under the control of Rome. And when they looked for a Messiah to come, they expected a liberation. They expected a literal kingdom, a liberation from uh, the Roman rule. And so when someone came up and began to indicate that they might be the Christ, I mean, this is pretty exciting. This might be the one. He could be it. The second group are the religious leaders. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that he brings up these two phrases, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Literally, the lawyers of the Jewish faith. But because it was the law of God, it was the law of Moses, they were both theologian and lawyer, teachers of the law. It's interesting that they don't appear in Luke's narrative as primary players until this moment. It's not to suggest they haven't heard him because we know from earlier readings that Jesus had traveled all over that region and had taught in every synagogue. So chances are that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had heard him. And when we see this moment, the unique thing is that some decision had been made by these groups, this, these connected groups of religious leaders, that they needed to pay attention to Jesus. And they were now consolidating those efforts. Picture this. Up until this point, Jesus has been traveling largely in rural areas. He has been preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's been healing. He's been creating quite a stir. But it's been very grassroots. And all of a sudden, the movers and shakers show up at one of his meetings. They come in in force. Imagine the immediate change of dynamic little bit of concern, a little bit of controversy. What's going on here? The problem is that the religious leaders have their own very specific ideas about the Messiah. Sometimes the people that think they know the most are the ones that see the truth the least. Because you get so locked into how you've been interpreting things for so long that you actually trust your interpretation as much as you trust the Scripture. I see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law present to us, they're not coming necessarily to affirm Jesus. They're coming because they've already decided in their thinking what the Messiah will be, and they're going to test him. This is going to become a problem for them because Jesus refuses to play by their interpretations because Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is going to be whatever the Messiah really is. And this is going to be a problem for the Pharisees. So it's fair to say that they're looking to test, looking to find fault. The third is the paralyzed man. This is a man who has faced disappointment and been dependent on others his entire life. 
When Jesus says, take up your mat, that mat represents a prison to him. That has been where he spent his whole life laying unless someone else picks him up and carries him. His body was not just a physical prison. It was a spiritual prison. Because in the Jewish way of thinking of those days, when someone had such an illness, it was a result of either that person sinning or perhaps someone in their family line generations ago. Let me offer an example to explain this. Do you remember uh, the story of the blind man who's crying out to Jesus in the crowd, Lord, have mercy on me? And the disciples of Jesus even are caught up with this way of thinking because they turn and see this blind man and their question is, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? To us, that's odd. We're so past that that we miss the significance of that way of thinking and the destructive impact it had on people that were physically handicapped in that culture. So this paralyzed man was unclean. He was not allowed to, to be in the synagogue to practice the rituals that in the Jewish people's thinking is what gave them access to God. And because the Jewish nation was at its core a worshiping community, it really set him on the outside of the whole culture an object of people's assumptions of judgment and guilt. This man is, is quite imprisoned by his illness. And then we have uh, the friends. Now, this is an interesting group of friends because what you see as you read the story is that they are willing to take big risks on behalf of their friends. They, they take some huge risks here. I mean, think about it. They, <laughs> they first show up, they think, we're going to take him to Jesus. Now, you have to be willing to think differently than the Jewish ideas about this man being under God's judgment just to believe that healing's possible. Now imagine them coming and knowing that the room is filled with religious leaders who have been the ones that have espoused this whole idea of illness being part of God's judgment. So not only are they bringing this person to Jesus, they see the crowd. They know who's there. They know what the Pharisees and the religious leaders think of this paralyzed man and therefore would think of them for daring to bring this man into their presence. Think about the, the potential uh, anger of the homeowner <laughs> that they would go up and take the roof apart. No, it's not quite like our roof. The homes were built in such a way that the pieces of the roof could be lifted. But just think of the effort of that. Somehow they not only got themselves up there, but got their friend up there. That speaks of a huge amount of devotion to this friend and a willingness to take the extra effort. Imagine the risk of their own reputation. Imagine the risk of going through all this effort and having their friend be disappointed again. Pretty big stuff. And the fifth piece of the cast of characters, of course, was Jesus. By this point, we see indication in all the Gospels that Jesus has been giving and giving and giving and is weary in well-doing. He often goes away and knows how to keep that pace of giving but taking time to be in prayer. But we picture him so exhausted during this period that when a storm comes up at sea and the rest of the disciples are just trying to survive, Jesus is asleep in the boat. I think there's two factors. One, he knew he was in the hands of his father. But second, I think he was exhausted. And now every move is being watched and analyzed by those who Jesus knows will be responsible ultimately for his crucifixion. Lines are being drawn. Every word that Jesus says is being measured. Every action is being watched. 
Jesus is weary and well-doing, critics watching him. And it's out of this setting, you have this awkward interruption, this man who represents what it means to be unclean, represents God's judgment to a huge piece of the crowd that's in that room. The friends up top, the homeowner maybe off to the side trying really hard to contain himself. They dropped him right in front of Jesus. Good aim. (laughs) Here is this moment. What is Jesus going to do? He looks at this paralyzed man. He looks up at his friends. Maybe they're sweaty, dirty. Now they're looking with hope and fear down through the, the hole in the roof. Jesus looks up, it says, and he sees the faith of his friends. Now the friend's hope is that the man will walk out of that room. Interestingly, Jesus' first response has nothing to do with his paralysis. What's the first thing Jesus says to him? Verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The thing you want to understand is that this is the first moment in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus claims a different level of authority. Up until now, he has demonstrated authority over physical illness, over nature, over the spiritual realm. But this is the first time Jesus dares to reveal a bit more of his divinity. See, the Pharisees are right when they say only God can do that. He looks at the man and he declares that his sins are forgiven. Now, it's important to understand he's not making an observation The language there is Jesus pronouncing it as though he has the authority to dispel the sin. And that's why the Pharisees respond by saying, this is blasphemy. Because Jesus was forgiving him out of his own personal authority. That's really important. So we learn a couple of things here. One, Christ's concern was not just for the physical well-being of people even though up until this point, that is largely what he's demonstrated. His first concern is for the hearts, for the eternal well-being of people. He said, I I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I think it's important for us to recognize that Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So as we look to be generous people, generosity itself never replaces what ought to be our primary concern, and that's for the souls, the hearts of men. That was Jesus' priority. It needs to be ours. Being good to people is the right thing to do, but it's never a substitute to bringing them to Jesus so that they also can have their sins forgiven. I'm not sure that's what the four friends had in mind, but they got a bonus. Your sins are forgiven you. Look at how the Pharisees respond. Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so here we are. This is where the conflict is set up between the religious leaders and Jesus. They have their idea of the Messiah, and it is distinctly human. So now as Jesus begins to step up and say, I'm more than that, they're going to have a problem with that. At some point, they're going to pick up stones to stone him. And he's going to put it to them. He said, I've done a lot of great things. Why are you stoning me? He said, not for any of the things you've done, but because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Make no mistake, Jesus claims to be God were his own. 
wasn't something that his followers made up after he had died so that they could create a religion that they would profit by, which, by the way, they ended up all dying for. No profit in it. They died because it was true. Jesus himself claimed to be God. He set it up. In the Gospel of John, he not only presses that point, but he says, if you do not believe that I am who I claim to be, you're going to perish. This was critical for Christ, and it's critical for us. The Pharisees were the most spiritually educated people of their day in the Scriptures, but they had become so arrogant in their own interpretation of it that they missed the fulfillment of those very Scriptures right before their eyes. That has to say something to you and I. Is it possible that we could sometimes get so fixed in how we've become accustomed to seeing things that when God shows up in a fresh way, we miss it? What did they call the Word made flesh? blasphemy. If Jesus showed up for church, would we recognize him? You know, I like to think we would. All right, so that's the first thing. He says, friends, your sins are forgiven. And then he turns to the Pharisees because he knows what they're thinking. And he says, so what's easier to to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? You know, it's interesting. The commentaries um, are split on this. Some commentaries say, well, it's clearly easier to say your sins are forgiven than to rise up and walk. And others say, well, it's clearly easier to say rise up and walk than to forgive your sins because that requires divine intervention. I don't know. But I do know Jesus is saying, I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. And he looks at this paralyzed man and he says, take up your mat. Stand up from your prison, wrap it up like everybody else gets to do every single day of their lives, and go take it home and stick it someplace to store like the rest of the family does. You're free. Get up, take up your mat, and go home. So we have a miracle that changes everything. First of all, the paralyzed man, he's healed body and soul. Let me just go back and re-hit this idea of our concern for the souls of people, not just for the physical well-being. Uh, Bob Gus, our bass player, was over the house. David invited him over, and um, David grew up as a fan of Keith Green. I don't know anybody in their 20s who even knows Keith Green, let alone knows all their music. How many know who I'm talking about, Keith Green? Yeah, all the old hippies here. (laughs) All the old Jesus people. Powerful songwriter, but also a great preacher. And David was playing Bob one of Keith Green's uh, sermons, and he was talking about the commandment to go and make disciples. And the thing he pointed out was that in the military, they have a standing rule that in the absence of any new orders, whatever the last order was that you receive, you continue that until you hear otherwise. And then he said, the last order that I remember we got from Jesus was go and make disciples. Go and be my witnesses in all the world around us. Those are the standing orders. They're for all of us. It was Jesus' heart. He demonstrated it with this man. And it was the last thing he told us to go and do. Seek the healing of people, not only physically, but spiritually. The religious leaders are set against Jesus. From this point on, in fact, in Luke chapter 6, it says it very clearly, uh, verse 7, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see what he would do 
on the Sabbath. At this point, they've already decided. It didn't take long. Jesus didn't fit into their interpretation. They dismissed him immediately and never looked back. Remember, they were the religious elite of their day. You have the friends, thrilled, (laughs) and the reward of their efforts. You have the crowd, amazed and giving praise to God. So when we look at this, what are the things we can learn about these four men that brought their friend to Jesus? And I just want to share three things that I want you to think about today. First of all, bringing a friend to Jesus is costly. It's not convenient. It demands setting aside our plans, our priorities, the normal things that fill our days, and it demands taking exceptional time and steps. It's costly. Bringing friends to Jesus is risky. If you're looking to stay safe, if you're looking to maintain the status quo in all of your relationships, bringing people to Jesus isn't the way to do that. But the status quo is death, not life. And then third, bringing a friend to Jesus is worth it. It is so worth it. Because Jesus changes lives. It's worth every bit of the effort. All of us, I think, know in our hearts that we're supposed to be about helping people come to Jesus. We know it's there, but never quite get to it. We don't quite get to it as churches. We don't get to it as families and as individuals. Every once in a while, we'll boot up and mention Jesus in some setting, and we feel somehow we've done something brave. But we all know in our heart that we're really not doing what Jesus had in mind when he said, go and make disciples. And I think most of us would love to figure out a way to do it. But what we want, I think, in our hearts is to do it without giving up anything without any loss of time or reputation or resources. We want to do it in a way that somehow doesn't cost us when it costs Christ everything. And he turns to us and says, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross. We need to consider ourselves dead but alive to Christ. Is it worth it? It's absolutely worth it when lives get changed. When people encounter the living Christ, he's magnificent, he's glorious, he's life-changing. He's a defining moment in their life. Just like the Pharisees are going to go one way, paralytic and his friends are going to go another way. It's a defining moment. But God wants everyone to face that moment. It's our call. And we can trust Jesus to be who he is and to be glorious. And all the effort is worth every bit of it when those people have their lives changed forever. That's what we're about. We've set this vision up from our very beginning that we want to be a place that touches many, many lives for Christ. I'm wondering why you come. It's not, it's not a criticism. I, I assume the very best. I, I love you, love you very much. But I wonder what keeps you coming every week. Is it more what you're getting from it? Are you blessed because you're receiving? And that's fine. We really want to grow together, and there's nothing wrong with expecting God to fill your bucket when you show up. But if that's all there is to it, then all we're going to be is another group that gathers for ourselves, for our good, for our family, for what we get from it. And when we do that, we become the church of Laodicea. Jesus standing on the outside, 
knocking, saying, anybody in there? And the church doing its thing on the inside, thinking nothing's wrong. (laughs) We want to be more than that. What we are asking God to do in this season is to inspire us to step out of those comfort zones and to really be the hands, feet, and voice of Jesus. One of the ways we're doing this is by focusing on Easter as an outreach event. I think that's my wife texting me. It is. (laughs) My wife's in New Jersey with her family, by the way. I'll tell you what she's saying. (laughs) Praying for you. That's cute. I miss her. It's been 20 days. I'm not doing very well. I managed to iron a shirt today. (laughs) That's why I'm wearing a sweater. You got it. We're hanging in there. Where was I? More people attend church on Easter Sunday than any other Sunday the entire year. So it's a great opportunity for you to think about inviting people to the journey be a great celebration. Uh, Really excited about it. I think it was Barna did a study several years ago. 40% said they would attend church if invited. 80% said they'd never been invited. So think about that. You got a four in 10 shot. So I'd like to encourage you to pray about that. What we've done is uh, we've printed a bunch of these, and if they're all gone, we'll, we'll print more for next week. I'd like you to seriously pray about taking five or 10 of these or 20 and inviting people, bringing them physically here and trusting Jesus to be magnificent in their presence. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Here we are celebrating the work that Christ did for us on the cross. The bread symbolizing his body offered as a sacrifice, the juice symbolizing his blood that was shed for us with a reminder that he did not just do this for you and me, He did it for the world, and God wants them all to know it. So I'm going to invite you just to sit quietly for a few minutes, and as we prepare for the Lord's table, take some time and pray. And as you pray and remember the great gift of grace that God has given you, I'd like to ask you to think about the people around you who are in need of Jesus. And in the same way Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for us, would you offer yourself to him as the instrument to reach out to them in love. And maybe mention specific people that you're praying about, that God's putting on your heart, that you're going to reach out with his love. You're going to be a real friend. Let's pray together. Jesus, you paid it all. We owe everything that we are to you. Help us, Father, as we celebrate this table, not to only receive it in gratitude, but to think of others who need to receive your grace. Inspire us, Father, as you laid down your life for us as an atoning sacrifice, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices for you. In Jesus' name, amen.